Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 187, Non-Meditation and the Nature of Thought. This week we're joined by meditation teacher and visual artist Robert Spellman to explore the nature of the thinking mind and how to work with our thoughts in meditation. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Robert Spellman. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks. I love the Buddhist Geeks. I know you do, because you are one. (laughs) (laughs) So, Robert, there's a topic that we thought would be really interesting to explore with you, and I know you've been teaching meditation for a long time, and that's basically how do we relate to the thinking mind as meditators. Mm -hmm. From what I've seen, the thinking mind just gets a really bad rap. It's kind of the ugly stepchild of meditation. (laughs) The ugly stepchild. Yeah, I think it's one of the most common misconceptions about meditation, that thoughts are a problem, that they're something that need to be gotten rid of, and that a lot of people shy away from meditation, probably intelligently, because that, that sounds like it might be a what did you say earlier, something almost Mm anti-life to do that. So, yeah, I'm interested. I teach that in my classes at Naropa. I try to dispel that uh, misconception right from the beginning that the point is not to get rid of thoughts, uh, but to see thoughts, to see the nature of thought. That's a very different thing. What is the nature of thought? Oh, damn it. I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Well, I don't know if I want to answer the question directly to say what is the nature of thought, but um, you could say what is the quality of thought. That might be a place to begin. You know, and most meditators are familiar with the quality of thought. It can be fast-moving, it can be very repetitive, it can be very seductive, that there are a lot of qualities to thought. I think I would... um, almost recommend that as an investigation first. What is the quality of thought? You know, what is just the quality of it? And the quality is a different, that's a very different investigation than the meaning or the content or the, how did you ask it earlier, what is the nature of thought? What is the nature of thought, yeah. Yeah, that's a very different kind of investigation. You know, just what is the quality of it? So you have to adopt a kind of neutrality about it in order to be able to maybe even get a glimpse of that. Yeah, it makes me think of the Vipassana, Vipassana type of practices where one's observing the the process of thinking and noticing when thoughts arise, are they images, are they auditory, Mm -hmm. what's the kind of, like you're saying, the quality of them, are they desirous thoughts, are they thoughts about the future or the past, what kind of uh, time senses in there, is that what you're describing? Somewhat, although even on a more... I could almost say idiotic level, you know, like if we're saying, you know, this is a desirous thought or this is an angry thought, that's still analytical from the point of view of of the meditator, where this is more just, what are these anyway? Actually, underneath even, you could say, what is the quality of it? It's, I don't know, I've actually never put it this way exactly, so you never know what happens in a Buddhist geek interview. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if we could maybe, maybe go at this from another angle, mm-hmm. which is, 
Why is it so common that people feel that thoughts or thinking are problems? Why does it feel so naturally that they're problematic in some yeah, way? Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the presentation. You know, the presentation isn't done carefully enough to be able to be very, very clear about what the relationship is to thoughts. Part of it is the presentation, but part of it is also the culture that we, that most people say in North America grew up in, which is based on a, a generally Christian, Judeo-Christian uh, view of sin and good and evil and those kinds of dichotomies, and uh, which, uh, interestingly, doesn't seem to have developed in other parts of the world, you know, that kind of dichotomy. So that if we receive instructions saying that the mind wanders everywhere, all over the place, and when you practice meditation, you're training the mind to come back, the first thing most people will conclude is, thoughts are bad. Mm. It just seems to go that way. Yeah. Yes. So I think partly it's, the, it's embedded in the culture, but I think partly it's in the presentation as well. Yeah, yeah. We, we interviewed a guy named Jason Siff, and he teaches this whole practice of unlearning meditation and mm -hmm. he talked about just that that there were sort of rules even in the instructions themselves that tended to make certain things wrong in some ways yeah that's interesting yeah so i know there are teachings in different traditions around how to work with thinking in a way that's more i don't want to say non-dualistic but i guess that's one word to describe it that mm -hmm. somehow thoughts aren't pushed away they're an integral part of the exploration kind of like how you were describing to notice the quality of thoughts yeah could you say some about that yeah i like that term that it's an integral part of the investigation rather than something to be gotten rid of and then we can get on with the investigation that it is the investigation itself you could say although that could be a tricky thing to say too but there was a 12th century uh, actually 13th century tibetan teacher named orjenpa this is an extract or an excerpt from a larger text. I don't actually know what the larger text is, but the quote is, uh, you need not make efforts to create non-conceptuality. You need not regard thoughts as a fault. And so that your practice does not succumb to famine, from the beginning have a bountiful crop. He's talking about thoughts here. From the beginning, a bountiful crop. A bountiful crop let them rip. He goes on to say, I'm not searching for a state that is calmly resting, vividly clear, and filled with bliss. Bring into your experience whatever arises without taking it up or discarding it. Mm. It's that the last phrase that's really important to remember. It's, you know, bringing everything into your experience, whatever arises, actually does not mean just doing whatever. It's not just blowing around like a plastic bag in the wind. But at the same time, there is this continual dawning of experience, a kind of thisness of reality. And he is recommending, instructing, and I love that this is, you know, eight centuries ago at least, and it still applies. He's saying, bring into your experience whatever arises. Bring it in without taking it up or discarding it. He's just talking about a very specific kind of view mm. of experience. Yeah, the taking up and discarding, that, it's like without getting engaged and without pushing it away. Yeah. Is that kind of what he's pointing to? Yeah, because I think the pushing away is a, another point where we often get confused with meditation, is that we think we need to push these things away. We need to push away the thoughts that happen in our mind or the extreme emotional upheavals or things that happen that we need to somehow get rid of them, so we push them away. And in fact, there is a tremendous amount of energy just right within the the arising of this always 
which is very exciting. Hmm. I'm wondering, because we've kind of been talking about it almost in the abstract up to this point, talking about it, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about your experience as a meditator. I know you've been meditating for decades. How is your relationship to thinking or to the thinking mind? How has it changed or has it changed? Mm-hmm. Could you say something yeah, about sure. that to kind of bring it almost into the personal realm? Yeah. There, there are a couple of things. One of them is that I've been doing this for about 40 years, and sometimes I think, wow, I am a hopeless case. You know, it's too late. It's not going to happen for me. And then other moments I realize, oh, this has actually been a really, really good thing to have done. I think maybe where I stumble is when I am identifying personally with insight. And when that's not there, it's actual insight. Uh, But as soon as I try to um, sort of locate it as here, then something goes south with it. Hmm. I think um, the other thing is, is this instruction from that quote I just said. I've been contemplating that lately because... The whatever arises in the mind, he says, bring it into your experience, whatever arises in the mind. So whether it's taking credit for some kind of insight or feeling completely disconnected or all of those things, those are all included. They're all included with the, you could say, the thisness of my experience. Is there some sense in which that's a good thing? Is there some sense in which there's freedom associated with that? Like, oh, yeah. why, why do that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. But uh, I would just say yes, comma, yes, comma, yes. Because I I think in that space of bringing into the experience whatever arises, it does not include the necessity of somehow getting rid of something or bolstering something else up. There's another term that is sometimes translated into English, I don't know what the Tibetan word is, but it's sometimes translated into English as mind's resource. It's the functioning of the mind, that it it functions all by itself. It's um, autonomic, like in the way digestion and other bodily functions are. The mind just sort of does what it does all by itself. The term mind's resource I like because it's not like mind's problem which is, I think, we're again, getting back to your original question, is that we tend to think of the operation of the mind, the, the workings of the mind, as a problem. We're uh, thinking of it as a resource. It's a very different kind of, of view, mm. you know, that it's a richness, and it's energetic, and it's filled with color, and all kinds of possibilities, mm. which is both the energy of it and where we can get ourselves into trouble, because it can be so seductive, and we can just get sucked right into that energy in a way that if we're not looking closely, will get us into the kind of circular problems that we find ourselves in. Hmm. I had one other thing that uh, just to add to that, and we were talking about it earlier outside, and it was the uh, just that term non-meditation. Oh yeah. That in the Tibetan tradition, there's uh, in the Kagyu tradition especially, there's a term. The word is non-meditation, and it literally means transcending all sophistries of meditation or non-meditation even. It's actually transcending the idea that there's something that we do with the mind, you know, that makes everything okay. And that it actually is going beyond any need to uh, manipulate or work with any kind of contrivances at all with the mind, so that the mind is truly let be, it's let alone. But it's a very advanced term at the same time. It's not let alone in the sense of like letting a 
dog run off a leash. It's letting it alone because it is fundamentally fine to begin with. But that recognition takes years of practice. Yeah, it seems like throughout everything you've been saying, there's this paradox I hear about the effort and the non-effort. Yeah. That somehow you're not saying non-meditation is non-effort. Yes. That somehow it's the type of effort that emerges from a lot of practice and seeing the relationship between these things. Yes. And eventually actually having there be no effort. You know, that it becomes effortless. You could say as a synonym for non-meditation, there's no effort. There's not a, a kind of conceptual boundary between, you know, regular experience and meditative experience. You know, that that distinction would no longer be, it just wouldn't exist. Mm. So that's why one can still drink a beer and, and still be a Buddhist geek. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping so. <laughs> yeah, because drinking a beer could be really great, or it could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Or not drinking a beer could be really great, or it could be a problem. You know, depending on how we're approaching it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.